Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. I think it's fair to say that Canada today is, in many ways, the direct product of its war years, notably of its experience between 1939 and 1945, when the Prime Minister was William Lyon Mackenzie King. His government transformed the domestic policies of Canada, and he surely transformed Canada's foreign policy. One can get a sense of that by examining Canada's relationship with the United States and with Great Britain. My guest today is Neville Thompson, and he has looked closely at Mackenzie King, along with Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Thompson is Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at Western University and the author of numerous books, including The Anti-Appeasers, Conservative Opposition to Appeasement in the 1930s, Wellington After Waterloo, Earl Bathurst and the British Empire, and Canada at the End of the Imperial Dream, Beverly Baxter's reports from London through War and Peace, 1936-1960. His new work is The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships that Won World War II, and it's published by Sutherland House. I reached him at his office in London, Ontario. Neville Thompson, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you very much, uh, Patrice. It's a great uh, honor and a pleasure uh, to be with you on this uh, podcast. Neville, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Tell me what happened on December 26, 1941. Well, December 26, 1941 was the first time that Mackenzie King, Winston Churchill, and Franklin Roosevelt had met. Uh, they'd known each other, as I'll elaborate in a few moments, uh, over the years. But this is the first time the three of them had met together. They met at the White House uh, just a few hours after Churchill had given his uh, speech to Congress. They, they, they met for tea. Uh, it should have been a very dramatic occasion. Churchill and Roosevelt had been together for a few days, but before that they'd hardly known each other. They had met for a few days at the Atlantic Conference the previous August, but apart from a brief and unfortunate meeting uh, during the First World War, they hadn't met each other before. They corresponded and so on. So they, they were only just getting to know each other. The entry of King should have been quite dramatic. A third party, uh, the leader of uh, the third most important country, which was Canada, important uh, to both of us. And yet it wasn't. It wasn't dramatic at all. Uh, they basically said hello, sat down on the couch. Roosevelt, of course, was already seated because he was uh, paralyzed from the waist down. Sat down on the couch on either side of Roosevelt, another couple of people uh, there, and had tea. There were a couple of other people as well, but they just began to talk. And the reason for this was because... Uh, Mackenzie King knew both Roosevelt and Churchill so well. There was no need for introductions, no need for uh, pleasantries, introductions. So they plunged immediately into the talk, and the talk was about something that concerned them all. And this was General Charles de Gaulle's Free French forces seizing the islands of Saint-Pierre-et-Miquelon just off the coast of Newfoundland. This seemed like a small comic opera episode now, but at the time, this was a major uh, feature because Roosevelt was very concerned uh, to try to uh, keep the goodwill of Vichy France, which he hoped would come over uh, to the Allies, uh, or at least to find a better leader than this jumped up acting brigadier general, arrogant uh, person, self-appointed leader, and so on. And furthermore, it was interfering uh, with the in the Western Hemisphere, which was the American sphere 
of influence and so on. So this was a, but they they just plunged right into this topic immediately without uh, introduction. They didn't need it and so on. They were old friends. It's 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 Boxing Day. Um, so Christmas was the day before. What was what was Mackenzie King's state of mind in this meeting? How did he approach? So he knew them both individually, but did he have any particular objectives uh, with this meeting? Well, he he did in one sense. I mean, he was glad to be included. He got a phone call from uh, Roosevelt a few days before inviting him uh, without telling him that Churchill was going to be there. But he, he sort of sensed that he's, Roosevelt said somebody important is coming uh, and so on. He sensed who it was going to be. Uh, he was glad to be included. Uh, and, so, and, and he did have a, a topic to discuss, as it turned out, because two days before, as I say, the Free French seized uh, Saint-Pierre and uh, Michelin. Uh, Mackenzie King was at first offended uh, by this, uh, but it didn't take him very long to realize that this was a good move because Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, tiny little fishing islands, uh, French possessions, had a very powerful radio transmitter, which was useful to sending signals to the German uh, submarines and ships on the Atlantic. Uh, furthermore, the governor uh, was very pro-German and his wife was German. So, so Mackenzie King did have an agenda and it was to make sure uh, that the free French were not ejected uh, and the whole thing handed back to the pro-German uh, governor, which was Roosevelt's first uh, uh, instinct. More than that, though, what, what he wanted to do was to get together with these two friends and very close allies and discuss things and so on on a personal basis. Right, right. Now, the most important document involving Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom was the land lease agreement of 1940. It had been signed months before. Can you explain to us what that agreement really involved and how, how did it fit into everything? Yeah, the Lend-Lease uh, Bill that passed Congress uh, in uh, March uh, 1941, after three months of congressional uh, debate. What this did uh, was to uh, give Britain supplies more or less unlimited, which would be somehow paid back after the war. This is a, a gift that Britain desperately uh, needed and so on. Without it, it probably couldn't survive. Remember, this was before even the Soviet Union had got involved in the war uh, with Germany. It was a struggle for survival. But the terms were extremely hard. This was not known publicly. Churchill said it was an unsorted gift. But in fact, uh, the Americans were demanding, first of all, that the British demonstrate, remember the United States is still neutral, uh, that the British demonstrate their need by selling off their gold, selling off their American investments at uh, rock down prices. The owners of them in return got uh, British uh, bonds. Also, that the British uh, cut back on their exports, which they needed to generate uh, income, concentrate on war production, and after the war, uh, agree on free trade. In other words, no tariffs to Britain, without saying that the United States would dismantle uh, its own tariffs. This was, these were tremendous uh, demands, which uh, the negotiations on which dragged out for a year until uh, March 1941, exactly a year later. And, and, and Churchill uh, was, was reluctant to accept them, but there was no alternative, no alternative. Now, in fact, we know now, looking back in retrospect, that at the end of the war, most of Lend-Lease was in fact written off. Uh, the Americans just agreed to let it go. This was partly largely because of the Cold War. They wanted to make sure that Britain was not uh, sort of reduced to bankruptcy. But nobody knew that at the time. 
What Canada learned from this was it was not going to accept land lease. Uh, Canada was importing a lot of stuff from the United States, which it needed for its own armaments and to supply Britain. Uh, so it had a, a balance of paid balance of payments uh, problems, but it was not going to accept land lease. It would not uh, sell its gold. It would not uh, sell its uh, investments in the United States, and it would not accept these conditions uh, of the call considerations. Uh, but it really meant uh, demands of the Americans. So what were they going to do? What Canada managed to do, and it was an extraordinary thing in the Second World War, was to negotiate what is called uh, the Hyde Park Agreement, by which the United States agreed to buy for cash what it needed from Canada. This was an astonishing thing, uh, because uh, this meant that the Canada could supply more uh, to Britain and so on. This was uh, an astonishing thing, but it has to be remembered that the United that the Canada was also supplying the United States state with things that it needed, including uh, munitions uh, and uh, parts for uh, armaments and so on. So Canada was in a strong position then, and the United States needed this. So Canada got a tremendous deal, much better than Britain. But the other side of that was that then Britain was able to supply much more to the United States, with, or to, to Britain rather, without uh, fear that the that the Britain wouldn't be able to afford to buy it, and was even to, able to give Canada huge gifts, credits. At the end of 1941, just after Pearl Harbor, uh, Mackenzie King decided to give Britain $1 billion, a lot of money in those days, uh, in credits to Canada. At the end, By the end of the war, they'd give them 4 billion credits. Another way of looking at this is that Canada sold the stuff to, to uh, Britain, uh, food, munitions, one thing or another, at about half price. Let's talk about Mackenzie King and Churchill. You, um, you indicate in the book that their relationship actually goes back almost 40 years at that point. How would you describe the relationship between King and Churchill? It does go back 40 years. It goes back to Christmas uh, 1900, uh, when uh, Churchill was on a speaking tour of North America, uh, talking about his adventures in the uh, Boer War, raising money uh, to become a member of Parliament. He'd just been elected, but they were unpaid. And he lived in a very high style, needed a lot of money, and so on. He was in Ottawa, uh, to uh, give a talk and also to visit the uh, Governor General, who was an old uh, family friend. And Mackenzie King met him. Whether the Mackenzie King actually went to the lecture is not so clear, because at that time, Mackenzie King's diary was only very spotty uh, and, and, and discontinuous. Uh, but they became, they met each other uh, for the first time. They became good friends uh, six years later, from 1906, when Mackenzie King went to Britain uh, on a, a mission to seek the British government's help in restricting Asian uh, immigration. And Winston Churchill was by then a liberal, uh, the, uh, you know, the second in command at the colonial office. So they had uh, sort of matters to discuss. They also had a personal connection. Winston Churchill's parliamentary, pri uh, parliamentary private secretary was Hamer Greenwood, a Canadian who had been at the University of Toronto with Mackenzie King, gone to Britain, become a barrister, become a member of uh, Parliament. So, so they had a, a, a sort of friendly connection. They became close friends. They were both young liberals, social reformers, uh, ambitious, energetic, and so on. They were exactly two weeks uh, different in age. So they were exact contemporaries. They became close friends. They drifted 
drifted apart a lot uh, in subsequent years, if I can sum it up very briefly, and disagreed fundamentally on two things. One was the empire, which, which uh, Winston Churchill was determined should be a united entity speaking with one voice. This is the uh, imperial dream, which I talked more about in the uh, last uh, book. Mackenzie King's view of the empire, uh, not of the empire, but of the commonwealth, the dominions, was that this was a, a kind of voluntary association of people who had a common heritage, common political institutions, common legal system, common culture, and so on, who would usually act together because they were uh, related, but they were not going to be bound together. I mean, Canada would go to the defense of Australia if Australia was threatened, if it was a good cause, but it would make up its own mind. It would not be automatically committed. Same thing with Britain and so on. Churchill was determined it was going to be a united uh, empire. And the last bid for this was in 1944, just before D-Day. And I think the third man gives the best account, the only one I really know about the uh, Churchill's efforts to convince the Dominion Prime Ministers they had to stand together. And King was determined it would remain a voluntary institution united by sentiment, uh, by uh, culture, and so on. And he won. The modern Commonwealth that existed from the 1920s to, say, the 1950s, after which, in effect, it collapsed, was really the coronation of Mackenzie King. So they differed on that. The other thing on which they differed fundamentally was on the, the run-up to the Second World War, uh, where King was desperate uh, to avoid war. Remember, this is only less than 20 years after a major war. It was as though we were facing today the prospect of a war when a major one had ended, say, in 2005. And so on. King was desperate uh, to avoid it and put his trust in Neville Chamberlain. Churchill, of course, famously uh, said, we have to stand up to Germany, we have to threaten them, we have to fight them if necessary, which led uh, Mackenzie King to think that Winston Churchill was the most dangerous person in uh, the British uh, Empire. Uh, so, but if it came to it, Mackenzie King was going to fight for Britain. This was the concept of the Commonwealth. And indeed, he had no hesitations in 1939. So their relationship was up and down. But throughout this up and down, even at their low points, Mackenzie King always had great admiration for Churchill. And they were always friends. They could meet as friends even when they disagreed. They had a fundamentally different perspective on the empire. But they were also of completely different styles. I mean, I think of Churchill and I think about a man who's effusive, who's uh, vastly intelligent and not afraid to show it, who's got all sorts of enthusiasms, whether it's for champagne or for literature. He's outgoing. He's gregarious. Mackenzie King is none of those things. He's completely the opposite. Uh, um, what did he, what, what did Mackenzie King think of Churchill? Did he have a, a personal view after all these many years of, of exposure? What was his view of Churchill? How did he see Churchill? Even at their low ebbs, uh, he admired Churchill. The quality of Churchill's mind, uh, his tremendous knowledge of history, literature, 
uh, and so on. His command, his confidence, his oratory, and so on. At the, at the, he made many assessments of uh, Roosevelt and Churchill, of course, uh, through the years. But in the very last one that he made, uh, he said that Roosevelt was a great man, but Churchill was even greater, the greatest man of his times. Not necessarily the greatest in everything, but the greatest overall. And what made him so great was the quality of his mind, his ability to grasp and control great subjects. So King then, although they were up and down in their relationships, they differed fundamentally, and King did not give way on his view of the Commonwealth and so on. Uh, he was an admirer of, uh, of, uh, of Churchill. What about Mackenzie King and Franklin Delano Roosevelt? This was a much more recent relationship. How would you describe that one? It was also a very good, strong relationship. It was more recent uh, because Mackenzie King met Roosevelt for the first time in 1935, just after King had been re-elected as uh, prime minister, and both he and Roosevelt, for reasons of their own, were anxious to control uh, to conclude uh, a trade deal that had begun uh, under Prime Minister Bennett uh, just before, which was essentially letting in more American uh, manufactured goods in return for more. Uh, agricultural goods going to the United States. So they had uh, a, 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 an interest in common. Uh, they met together in November uh, 1935 and almost immediately were on the same wavelength. They were the same kind of people. Their societies were very similar. Their outlooks were similar. They were elitist, but they were Democrats. They were not creatures of a society like Britain in which there was prescribed um, uh, um, prescribed privilege of aristocracy and that kind of thing. But this did not mean that King was an unqualified admirer of Roosevelt. He disapproved of the New Deal. He, he was an old-fashioned liberal. He believed in low taxes, free trade, leaving the economy uh, to uh, sort of govern itself and so on. And he thought that the, uh, the New Deal, huge uh, state intervention, massive government spending, huge uh, public debt, uh, paying farmers to take land out of production when people needed food. This was immoral, it was bad economics, and it was going to ruin the country. And he never gave up on that, even in the Second World War, when the United States was spending far more on the war than it ever spent on the New Deal. Mackenzie King was saying, this is still going to get them into trouble. So, but, but he admired Roosevelt as a person. Roosevelt was somebody who was trying to do something for ordinary people, perhaps too fast, his uh, methods perhaps too radical, and so on. But King really admired that, uh, and he, he never let up in his admiration for Roosevelt uh, till the end of Roosevelt's life. It says a lot about Mackenzie King that he's comfortable with the Brits, and he's comfortable with the Americans, fundamentally comfortable with the leadership of both countries. Yes. He was a person who could get along with many people. He was a gregarious person. Uh, I mean, if people think of him as a lonely bachelor. This isn't true. Uh, he went out almost every uh, day of his life. There was some social engagement and so on. He liked people. Uh, he liked Churchill and Roosevelt along with them, and they got along well with him. He was a good person to have in a conversation uh, and so on. So we've talked about King. What did FDR and Winston Churchill think of King? Do we have anything on the 
record about what they thought of the Canadian Prime Minister? That's a harder question to answer. I wish I could answer it more clearly. I wish I could find a conversation in which Churchill and Roosevelt were <laughs> alone, uh, say, at the White House or Quebec or something, <laughs> talking about Mackenzie King and what, what they thought of that. I haven't been able to find anything of that kind. That would be too easy. <laughs> it would, but it would be nice to do. But, but what I think I can say with great confidence is they liked him and they trusted him. They had confidence in him. If Mackenzie King said he was going to deliver something, he delivered it. Of course, it helped that he uh, was in a parliamentary system with a big parliamentary majority, but it was absolutely reliable, trustworthy, and so on. Furthermore, Mackenzie King seemed to be a person of the utmost discretion. They could tell him secrets, and they knew that he wouldn't be spreading them around town, which is true, unless they asked him to uh, sort of leak something he never did. But what they didn't know was he was recording all this at great length in his uh, diaries, which makes them an invaluable source, not just for Canadian history, but for American history. Devil, we'll come to the diaries. I know, I know. But the reason they trusted him so much was not just confidence in him, but also his discretion. Yes. Now, you, you subtitle your book, The Untold Friendships. What role do you think friendship plays in international relations? Most of international relations is structural. It's about undertakings that are, that are, that are created by countries with each other. What is the role of friendship? It seems to be very important in this relationship. Well, what's, what difference does a friendship make in international relations? As you say, most of it is most of it is structural, especially now. Uh, but this wasn't always so. I mean, in the 19th century, uh, relationships between heads of state made a great deal of difference, and you can see. Uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Mackenzie King, in a sense, being the end of this tr 19th century tradition. They were all three of them Victorians. They were all born and grew up uh, before the First World War, uh, when personal diplomacy was much more common uh, than it is uh, now. So they, they simply took it for granted that diplomacy was best if it was personal. I just a few moments ago, gave an example, and it was the, the Hyde Park uh, agreement on trade. This would probably have happened, something like it, in any event. But it might have dragged out for many, many months. Uh, King and Roosevelt getting together after dinner at Hyde Park uh, with uh, Henry Morgenthau, the American treasurer, on the telephone, were able to work it out just in a few minutes. Now, a lot of preliminary work have been done, and so on. So I think... Um, th th this friendship is, is a lubricant, as I think you well put it. It's not essential, but things work better if they can, and especially better at those days. One of the things about the Second World War, which is really quite astonishing on all levels, is how much diplomacy was personal. I mean, Churchill, and also Churchill and Roosevelt flying off to see Stalin and so on, uh, at a, a huge uh, risk, uh, especially to Roosevelt's health and so on. A lot of it was personal. And King was the key person between Churchill and Roosevelt. They got along very well, but there was tensions between them. And he was a kind of lubricant. He was the only person in the whole world who knew both Churchill and Roosevelt well. And furthermore, he wasn't just a nobody, anybody who knew them well. He was the, himself the head of the third most important country in the Western Alliance. His, his role in the Second World War was more important 
than that of Charles de Gaulle, who gets much more uh, attention. So friendships can can find shortcuts. They can they can facilitate things. They can accelerate things. They can, and it's an important thing to remember when we consider international relations. I think that those international relations that do not benefit from from the friendship uh, at the at the very summit uh, are inevitably going to be slowed down. They're going to be bogged down, and uh, it's something that we need to remember. We we tend to think of systems too much in terms of international relations, and and I think that uh, personalities matter. Personalities do matter, don't they? Yes, they do matter. They do matter. It is, it's, it's, it's friendship, but it's also trust. I mean, just imagine uh, if it had been a very different prime minister of Canada, uh, say, somebody who was deeply suspicious of uh, the United States or deeply suspicious of the link uh, to Britain, uh, and so on. It, it would have been a very different relationship. And so things would probably have been much the same, but they would not have been quite the same, and they would certainly not have been so easy, which was a great advantage. Uh, I mean, under the pressure of war, I mean, we think of these people meeting together and so on, having drinks, lunch, and so on. But meanwhile, of course, huge battles and so on were going on. Ships were being sunk. Uh, <laughs> indeed, indeed. There's a war going on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a big, the biggest war in history. Exactly. Now, let's come back. I mean, it's, it's, it's delightful to hear you wax so eloquent about the importance of Canada in the Second World War, but but Neville, let's let's be honest. I mean, uh, King's role was not really strategic, was it? I mean, a lot of the things would have happened no matter what. Uh, but it's important. I mean, his role was important. How do you think that role evolved over the years of the Second World War? Was it always the same thing, or do you think there was an evolution in that triangle between King and FDR and, and Churchill? I don't think there was much of an evolution. Uh, what you say about the war is correct. And in King's diary, and I mentioned it in the book, there is a memo uh, in which he said, I'm really leaving the leadership of the war to Churchill and Roosevelt because I trust them. And also because they have the expertise. They have the advisors. I mean, they had huge staffs with which Canada could not compare. Uh, the, the Britain, after Pearl Harbor, had 9,000 representatives in Washington, military, trade, political, one thing or another. I haven't been able to find out how many uh, Canada had in Washington, but it can only have been a few hundred. Uh, and so on. So King trusted them, so long as they consulted Canada when its interests uh, were involved, which didn't, unfortunately, always happen. And this was a source of uh, uh, some uh, friction. But by and large, uh, he left it uh, to them. He was not a military person. He had no military instincts uh, and so on. But on big issues, uh, he was there and he was important. If Mackenzie King had been uh, included in the uh, strategic talks, which was a real problem because it would have meant involving other countries as well, the other dominions, uh, countries such as Brazil and de Gaulle, uh, whom uh, Roosevelt uh, detested and so on. But if he had been involved, it, it's a fair guess that he would have supported Britain more than the United States because Churchill in the Second World War was very cautious about a premature landing across the channel 
he was well aware of how the First World War become bogged down in a stalemate uh, and so on. You, you don't want to use the word fearful uh, too loosely in connection with Churchill, but he was very prudent. And the Mackenzie King's instincts were always the same. But the, 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 so in that sense, the relationship didn't evolve because Mackenzie King wasn't uh, uh, concerned with it. But his, but his friendship with the two, his knowledge and understanding of them, and their appreciation of him, and all he did for both countries, because remember, he was also supplying the United States with armaments and the means of armaments until the United States was really fully uh, mobilized, which wasn't until 1943. The, their appreciation of him, I think, became stronger. So the friendship and the connection became stronger. And Mackenzie King really thought he was going to have an important role after the war and was encouraged in this by Roosevelt and Churchill, who thought that they were going to be running the war through the, the world through the agency of the United Nations. And Mackenzie King would be the ideal frontman to try to resolve differences among countries and then to advise when necessary if armed force should be used against aggression. None of this came apart about because Churchill was out of power, Roosevelt was dead, the United Nations developed in a different way. But this this is a, an indication of how highly they regarded him. He was the third man in their view of running the world. Now, you mentioned that, uh, of course, things end abruptly in 1945. FDR dies in April of 1945. Mackenzie King, I, I discovered this in your book, was the only head of government that was present at his funeral. What do we know about Mackenzie King's reaction to that event? Not, not, not at the funeral. He was at the uh, burial. At the burial at Hyde Park. Yeah, yeah. The, the end of Roosevelt's time came in uh, two parts. Uh, there was a uh, funeral at the White House, which was by any standard a very modest event. Only 200 people, uh, no speeches, a couple of uh, hymns, no words added to the just very brief uh, Anglican uh, Episcopalian liturgy by the priest. Except at Eleanor Roosevelt's request, he added the words, there is nothing to fear but fear itself. It was a very small funeral. Canada was represented by the Governor General Lord Athlone because Mackenzie King found it difficult that day uh, to be there on very uh, short notice. And Lord Athlone thought it was a very badly run ceremony and probably by royal senate. <laughs> well, Mackenzie King asked Eleanor Roosevelt's permission to go to the burial at Hyde Park. This was supposed, apart from the new president, Truman, his cabinet, this was restricted to family, friends, and neighbors. Uh, so Mackenzie King went that not as a head of government, but as a friend. As a friend. He felt he owed it to Roosevelt and to Eleanor Roosevelt, too, as a sign of friendship to go. So he went there, taking with him a niece of Eleanor Roosevelt, who uh, lived in uh, uh, Ottawa and who no, no other easy means of getting there on his uh, train. And he, it was a very moving ceremony. It was a warm April day. Uh, Roosevelt was uh, buried again in a very short uh, service, no reception, no great uh, ceremony or anything like that. King was very moved by it. Putting back a body into the earth at the sign of spring was signs of renewal. King, of course, was also a spiritualist. He believed that death was just a movement from the physical to a higher spiritual plane. And he told Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, when he expressed his condolences after the uh, burial, uh, that Franklin will still be with you, perhaps even closer than before. You'll be able to 
communicate uh, with him and so on. And, and, and King really believed this. Uh, and he wasn't so unusual. Uh, the heyday of spiritualism and mysticism was really the end of the 19th and early 20th century as a combination both of science dissolving the old certainties and of the terrible trauma and loss of the First World War. Well, I mean, and you, I think you point out at one point in your book that had uh, Churchill or Roosevelt discovered that King was such a spiritualist, they would not have been... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Horrified, scandalized oh, yeah. by that revelation. It was very much part of their generation, wasn't it? Yeah. They, they, they knew lots of people who were spiritualists. This is a kind of big issue, I suppose, in Canadian history and view of King. That spiritualism and its communication with people in the great beyond had no effect whatsoever on policy. He used this to sort of strengthen his belief that he was doing the right thing. There is not one example that I've been able to find, and I doubt that anyone else can, of somebody beyond the grave changing his mind. And so <laughs> so it, 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 many people, I mean, I mean, Air Marshal doubting the victor of the Battle of Britain Believed also, like King, that he talked to his former wife. He believed in fairies, extraterrestrials, and he published books on it. And nobody thought that this was weird uh, doubting uh, and so on. So uh, I think we make too much of it. It was within the range of the normal. Exactly. Now, Neville, you've been writing about Churchill in one way or another for almost 50 years now. Has your perception of the man changed over this period? Well, I, first of all, I have to say that there were many decades in uh, which I spent in the 19th century away from Churchill, but I always remained in touch with the contact, with the subject, partly because I had an investment in it, I uh, was interested in it, and partly because my teaching always included the 20th century, whatever else I taught. I taught from the 18th century to the 20th, but it always included the 20th. Uh, and yes, my view has Churchill has changed. First of all, of course, I know him a lot better. There's a lot more material on him now. I understand his complexity much better. I understand why people disliked Churchill, hardly disliked Churchill, even when he was the savior of the country in the Second World War. He was arrogant, self-centered, uh, enormously <laughs> uh, confident, uh, very much nepotistic, looking out for him fr as friends and his relations, keeping the other people out, uh, and so on. But if he hadn't had these qualities, he could not have had the tremendous confidence to lead Britain in the 1940-1941, till at least the Soviet Union got involved in the European war. Uh, there was nobody else in Britain who had the confidence. Almost anybody else would have come to some kind of terms with Hitler, tried to come to some terms. I can't think of one other person, and nobody can either. So his defects, if you want to look at it that way, his personal uh, uh, angularities were also his strengths. And that that time. The other thing I've come to realize over the years is that although Churchill wrote a great deal, you can't really depend on it. I mean, he's writing the stuff from his point of view, and he's writing it for a purpose. For example, his massive history of the uh, Second World War, which contained documents which it was thought would not be available for 50 years. In fact, the British government reduced it to 30 and now uh, to 20. Uh, but it's very much his view. Mackenzie King wasn't the only one who said it. He's telling the story, although he's the only person who ran the war. But there's more to it than that. He was expressing 
he was fitting the Second World War into the Cold War. He wrote this after the Second World War, and he was very much addressing it, particularly to American audience, saying, we're not careful, this is going to happen again. This was brought out very well uh, by a great uh, Cambridge historian, David Reynolds, uh, uh, in, in the book. but I've, I've become much more aware that, that, that you have to be cautious. But, but still, in all his faults, he was still a great man. Nobody is perfect, except perhaps you and me, but I mean, apart from that, well, <laughs> <laughs> Roosevelt wasn't perfect. Either. But it's, it's relatively easy to keep up with Churchill because it seems to be a new book like on Churchill regularly. There's an insatiable appetite for books on FDR. Now, what about Mackenzie King? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask you whether Mackenzie King should be the object of as many books as Churchill or 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 FDR. But do you think that we need to rediscover uh, Mackenzie King? Yes, I do. I don't think uh, Mackenzie King will ever be the subject of as many books as Churchill and Roosevelt. He was not a heroic figure. Nobody can make him into one. But he was an extremely effective manager, and he deserves to be put onto the world stage where he was a major actor. I think he was at least as important, more important, than General Charles de Gaulle, on whom there are a huge number of books. Mackenzie King is a kind of missing uh, part of the international story, especially of the Western Atlantic Alliance. The one person who has brought this out in recent years uh, is a man by the name of Nigel Hamilton, originally British. He made his reputation by writing a big book on uh, Montgomery, who was practically his uncle, a great friend of his father. He's now become an American, and he's written three volumes. Three volumes, a bit uh, excessive, perhaps, on uh, Churchill, on uh, Churchill, and uh, no, sorry, on Roosevelt as commander in uh, chief, uh, and he has used the Mackenzie King diaries, not just the published version edited by uh, uh, Jack Pickersgill, uh, but the original uh, archival diaries to very good effect. And I think more people need to do this. The other thing is Canada. Uh, which includes Mackenzie King, of course, also needs to be put on the world stage. There are many very good books about Canada in the Second World War, especially Canada's uh, military participation, but these don't get integrated into the general accounts. And I think it's because they're written not just by Canadians, but directed specifically to a Canadian audience. They need to be directed to an outside audience, meaning principally the United States and uh, Britain. This is what I've tried to do this in uh, uh, The Third Man, whether I succeeded is another matter, but I, I hope it uh, is some help at least. No, you did. Now, what about what about Mackenzie King? You, I don't think you've ever written about Mackenzie King before. No, never. <laughs> How has King captivated you? Has 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 your perception of King changed as a result of your labors on this book? Well, it's it's not so much changed as this <laughs> sort of developed. Uh, I had no view of Mackenzie King. I spent most of my life in British and European history. My research was in British history, but I also taught European uh, history and various uh, uh, forms and so on. So, I'm ashamed to say it, though I'm a Canadian. <laughs> I mean, I read Canadian history books, but I had no strong sense of Mackenzie King. My, my view, probably 10 years ago, would have been, he was obviously a very competent politician. He was very good at getting elected, re-elected, uh, and uh, so on, good political manager. But he was basically a colorless uh, character. He was a kind of non-entity in the Second World War. Canada made a great contribution, but this was largely the result of, uh, of strong ministers, C.D. Howe and others, uh, also strong uh, civil servants, military leaders, and so on. I now think 
That's wrong. Mackenzie King was not uh, involved, uh, sort of down in the nitty-gritty of it, but neither were Churchill and Roosevelt. But it was Mackenzie King who set the tone. Mackenzie King who determined that Canada was going to do its best for the Second World War. Who uh, He personally made these decisions to make these gifts uh, to Britain. He could have said, let's make them loans, they'll pay them back after the uh, war and so on. Uh, and then goaded on uh, people and so on. And very effectively did this held the country together. He held endless cabinet meetings, which are not just boring events because he wanted to build a consensus. He managed Quebec very well. He managed conscription very well. I don't think anybody could possibly have handled it better than that. And I point out in the book that it was not just a problem for Canada, it was a problem for other countries, including Britain. Britain could never extend conscription to Northern Ireland because of the sectional divisions between Catholics and uh, Protestants uh, there and so on. It, it could only accept uh, volunteers. He handled it extremely well. And I think he, he deserves respect, uh, at very least. He's not a heroic figure, but he was a very important figure in guiding it through as an extremely difficult period, for which he had no preparation. He was not a kind of person with an interest in military things like uh, Churchill or even uh, Roosevelt, and he did it very well. And he laid the foundations for Canada after the war, as you said in your introduction. And he survives. I mean, he survives the war. He's re-elected in 45. <laughs> <laughs> the only one who did. Roosevelt, of course, died. And there's a lot of stuff in Mackenzie King's diary about how frail Roosevelt was long before the last year of his life when we know in retrospect he would die. Uh, I mean, King points out he, his hands are shaking on one thing or another. And he's still only, it is, he's in his early 60s, FDR. Yeah, that's right. I want to I want to come to the uh, the classic Champlain Society question because you've raised it already a number of times. I know you want to talk about it, and that's the sources for this book. Uh, you sing the praises of the diary. Tell me about the Mackenzie King diary and what it has meant for you as a historian and as a researcher. It's seven and a half million words. I don't think there could be any other head of a government anywhere, certainly not of a major country, but even a minor one, who kept a record anything uh, like that. I mean, 30,000 typewritten pages. The early parts were written by hand and were transcribed uh, uh, to uh, typescript. And it's got all sorts of stuff uh, in there. Nobody has previously used it, I don't think, the way I have, uh, for uh, relations between Churchill and Roosevelt and international uh, affairs, but they've used it uh, for other things. But its it strength is, in a sense, one of the things that puts people off. This massive diary. I mean, it would take a long time to read it. I don't claim to have read it all. I've read a lot of it, uh, but uh, but I, I, I've not read it. And even in the Second World War, there, there are parts that I've... Uh, frankly skipped over because they were concerned with specifically uh, internal events and so on. But it's it's a great resource, not just for Canada, but also for Britain. When I did a, a, a presentation at the Roosevelt Library a few months ago, the director said he was astonished by how much it shows in my book was in Mackenzie King's book, not just about Roosevelt, but about other people like Harry Hopkins, uh, Morgenthau, uh, Cordell Hall, the Secretary of State. And so on. It's a great resource, and it's a miracle 
that it survived. This is a subject that has been handled much better than I don't need to do it uh, because it's been uh, handled uh, by... Uh, Christopher Dummett. We did a podcast with him. A wonderful book. I don't need to repeat it. But it's a miracle that things survived. And thank goodness it did for Canadian history, for British history, uh, for American history. And it deserves to be brought to the attention uh, of historians outside the country who can also use it. And it's very easy to use because there it is on the website of uh, Library and Archives Canada, easily accessible. And searchable. Searchable, <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you want to search Cordell Holly, just type in Hull, and up it comes. It's an astonishing, <laughs> astonishing thing. It's a miracle of the modern electronic age. For, uh, I say, Christopher Dummett wrote the biography of the diary, and we have a podcast uh, with uh, Christopher Dummett. Alan Levine also wrote a wonderful book, I thought, on Mackenzie King, using uh, Mackenzie King's words in his own diary. But Neville, I want to I want to talk about you now. You've been at this for a long, long time. How do you think you have changed as a historian over the past 50 years? Well, I've read a lot more. <laughs> I've thought a lot more. <laughs> but in some ways, I don't think I've changed a lot. I'm still interested in the same kind of history, which is biographical political history. I mean, there are different ways of going at political history. My way is biographical. I'm interested in uh, the interplay of personality, what the late Donald Creighton called a character and circumstance. I'm interested in biography. I'm interested in uh, people. Uh, so in, in some ways, I'm still the same kind of person. I still write in basically the same kind of way, trying to put history into a literary form to make it uh, notable uh, for its style as well as its uh, content. And that means using the language of fiction, even poetry. I don't want to overstate my own qualifications or anything, but, but sort of bringing in the resonances of the things that you read into it to make it more interesting both for form and uh, for content. So I don't, in, in that sense, I I hope I've developed, but I don't think I've changed fundamentally. But I have in some ways. I've become much more aware of contingency. I think when I began, I thought that history unfolded the way it did and, you know, there, there weren't too many other ways it could. I am now much more conscious, and you get this out of reading contemporary diaries more than uh, sort of books based on retrospect. Uh, the, the, the things could have turned out very differently. I mean, there might not have been a Second World War. Winston Churchill might well have gone bankrupt in 1939 and had to leave politics and not been available to lead the uh, country. All kinds of things. Roosevelt might not have run for a third term in 1940. The opposition to uh, such an unprecedented move might have presented. I'm, I'm much more aware of contingency than I have now. I think all historians should be aware that things could have turned out very differently, very differently. That there are always choices Places, uh, things should have gone a different way, and they need to bring this into the narrative. I try to do it, whether I succeed or not, is another matter. So I'm much more aware of, uh, of, of uh, contingency than I was before. The other thing that I'm much more aware of, because it was developing just about the time I began in the 1960s, I went to graduate school in 1962, was is social history. Uh, I mean, if there's one form of, of history that has developed enormously in the last 60 years. It is social history. Before the 1960s, it was assumed that 
It was almost impossible to write the history of ordinary people, except from economic data, uh, from the view of the elite and so on. It's now known that there are many sources. Even if ordinary people didn't keep diaries, even if they were illiterate, you've got court records, you've got police records, you've got newspaper accounts of things and so on. You can get inside the minds of ordinary uh, people. I've become much more aware of it. I've never written this kind of history. I always made a point of teaching a lot of it, uh, partly to keep myself informed and also because it was important for the students to know it. And I've tried to bring it into the political history as well. After all, the political history doesn't occur in a vacuum. I'm more aware now, for example, that appeasement in the 1930s was very much conditioned by the economic depression which affected all countries. Britain, which was less hit than most countries, in Canada, particularly the Canadian West, in the United States, which the response to which was the New Deal, uh, and so on. I'm much more aware of, uh, of that, than that than I was before, and I hope I've tried to integrate it uh, a little bit. Now, you defend social history admirably, uh, but you, as you say, you, you write political history and, and biographical political history. Do you think there's a future for this genre? What do you think needs to be done? It's under attack, Neville. What do you think needs to be done to make political history? It's under attack, but then some people are attacking social history too. Uh, military history has been too narrow and so on. Um, political history will always be of interest, because after all, what this means is the decisions of the community, whether at the village level, the provincial level, national level, international level. These are things that affect people. Even if you're writing about factory workers in the 19th century, you cannot leave politics out of it. I mean, it matters very much whether the state, on behalf of the community, limits the hours of work of people, limits the age at which children can work, uh, and so on. So the, the two things are closely connected. They need to be better related. As I say, I've tried to bring it in a bit into political history. The kind that I write, though, is, let's face it, it's history at the top, and it's hard to bring it in. But I try to be aware of it. And, and bring it in, if even only as a minor uh, theme. Political history will not die out. There are different ways of doing it. You can do it institutionally, uh, but you can also do it by a kind of biographical graphical interplay of personalities. And this is true even today, when institutional connections are more important than personalities as they were until the Second World War. The Second World War, as I say, was the end of a kind of era of the Congress which began the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Neville, thank you very much for this wonderful book, and thank you for being the witness to yesterday for this episode. Thank you very much, Patrice. That was Neville Thompson, the author of The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships That Won World War II. It's published by Sutherland House. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. 
that's there's a way for you the listener to support this podcast please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation the champlain society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over twenty dollars any support goes a long way as the champlain society receives no government support for its operations which always surprises people and don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer my name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the fourth wave of the COVID pandemic on October 25th, 2021, by our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.